Welcome. Uh, <clears throat> Welcome. Nice to have you here. Um, <clears throat> you did really well. Yeah. And you were sitting right, right in front of me, so it's checking it out. <laughs> um, so today is um, a really auspicious day in a number of ways. Um, in the Buddhist world, uh, today is uh, Vesak, uh, which is a holiday celebrated throughout uh, the Buddhist community, and it commemorates the um, birth, the enlightenment, and the death of the Buddha. So um, this is a, um, a celebratory time. Um, it's, it's a time when everyone in Buddhism honors uh, these uh, landmarks, these milestones in Buddha's life. And uh, so it's, it's an auspicious day to um, uh, be uh, George's preceptor today, and he will be uh, receiving precepts on this day, which is um, doubly auspicious because uh, we are um, celebrating uh, George's lay ordination. <clears throat> so I wanted to... Um, talk a little bit about the precepts. We have, over the course of the years here at Owan, uh, repeatedly gone through the precepts, one at a time, and had some wonderful discussions and deepening understandings of the precepts. <clears throat> and we never tire of addressing the precepts because they are absolutely critical part of Buddhist practice because they really govern the way we live. And so um, without the precepts, um, we don't have Zen. We don't have Zen Buddhism. Uh, they're at the core of our, our understanding and our practice. Uh, in Buddhist practice, uh, these precepts are integral to what we call shila, S-I-L-A, which means morality. And there are three uh, dimensions, you might say, to uh, the fully realized human being. And the first is shila, which is morality and ethics. And the second is samadhi, which is the practice of concentration and meditation, and the third is prajna, which is wisdom. All of these are connected, so shila, samadhi, and prajna. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, in most classical Buddhist training, you don't practice meditation until you've received precepts. Uh, here, generally in the West, certainly in the United States, you start with meditation and then you, then you decide to receive precepts. So I, I invite you to consider the fact that, that in our training, to begin with Sheila, to begin with receiving precepts, 
is a way of, uh, you might say, becoming a good person. And unless you, in a way, unless you've intended to become a good person and have practiced becoming a good person, there's really no point to meditation. <laughs> you know, um, and as a matter of fact, your meditation will probably not be terribly productive or meaningful because you will be in a state of uh, sort of distortion, of ignorance, of a, a mind that's confused and deluded if, if you're not practicing being, being a good person. So if your intention isn't to be a good person, um, you, you know, you, you, you might as well not meditate uh, because our practice is about goodness, is about being a fully realized human being. There is, um, there is a, a quote that I often like to refer to, um, which appears at the beginning of Zen and the, motor, and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which I highly recommend to everyone. It's, if you want to find a Buddhist text that really uh, speaks to the modern, the modern mind, it's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And right at the beginning, the dedication, uh, Persick, Robert Persick, who wrote the book, quotes uh, Plato, which of course one of my favorite people because I studied philosophy in my previous life. Um, and he quotes uh, Plato who speaks about um, morality and goodness in a dialogue called the Phaedo. And he addresses Phaedrus, who is one of his interlocutors. And he says, What is good, Phaedrus? And what is not good? Need we ask anyone to tell us these things? And what is good, Phaedrus? And what is not good? Need we ask anyone to tell us these things? So I ask you, do you need to be told, to be instructed as to what is good and what is not good? The implication here is that somehow we know we know what's good and what isn't good. We may be in denial about it, we may cover it over, we may distort it, but it is our birthright to know what is good and what isn't good. And I certainly know that quite independently of being told or being admonished that I've done something wrong, or not good, or not wholesome, I, I feel it. I often give the example of a friend of mine who, um, in Wegmans, Wegmans is a great training ground for <laughs> practice. Uh, so is Trader Joe's, by the way. I don't want to discriminate uh, between the two. Um, but a friend of mine once said, we both love chocolate-covered ginger, 
and they have that in the bulk foods. Yeah. And she told me that it's extremely expensive. Uh, and she said one of the things she did was write down the wrong number, uh, uh, something that was uh, near the chocolate-covered ginger, but was not the same number as the chocolate-covered ginger, and it was cheaper. So she got away with it at the cash register because they don't really check to, you know, they're busy and they just go through it. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. I, I think I might give that a try. <laughs> you know, my ego was like, you know, I'm going to, you know, why should I pay $13.95 a pound for chocolate-covered ginger? So I, I did. I, I actually wrote down the wrong number, and I got away with it. And I felt so rotten. Even though my ego said, yay, Mato, you did it. You, you got something for nothing. You know, you got, you, you, you're, you managed to get through. Um, and this is basically stealing. Um, and of course, you can come up with all sorts of rationalizations that, what does Wegmans care about one person who <laughs> took this? at a lower cost. They make so much money. No. I could come up with all kinds of rationalizations for, oh, well, this was just an experiment. I'm not really a thief. But I felt it. I felt it. And so it's because we're not in touch with what we know is good and what we know is not so good that we, we think we need rules. But, but according to Buddha, these precepts are really not needed. <laughs> these, the, if we were, the, these precepts are just descriptions of what we would naturally do if we were fully realized people. If these are the most natural things for a good person to do. You know, you wouldn't lie, you wouldn't steal, you wouldn't, you know, be unfaithful in relationships, you wouldn't kill unnecessarily, you wouldn't give way to anger, you wouldn't do any of these things if you were just behaving as a fully realized human being. So it's only because we've forgotten who we really are and have our lost touch with our true nature and are being assaulted by all kinds of other value systems or all kinds of uh, pressures uh, and distortions and delusions about who we are and our ego gets kicks in, that we do all these things. And so the precepts remind us, really, of who we would be naturally if we were just good people, right? So, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm remembering um, George Bernard Shaw, um, who was a strict vegetarian, um, once said 
that if we allow children to grow up in a very natural way, they would naturally be vegetarians. They, they wouldn't eat meat. And he said, because um, for children, animals are their friends. You know, because kids usually have stuffed animals, you know, and they love animals. And, and George Bernard Shaw said, a child would say, animals are my friends. I don't eat my friends. So there's something natural about precepts, about killing, about lying, about stealing, about that if we, if we maintained somehow our original nature, our child, not, not being children, but like children, maintaining that innocence, that fundamental goodness that we all have, that precepts would be um, would be unnecessary. We'd just be naturally good people. Um, a lot of people think and will say that precepts are impossible to observe, that they're ideals like the paramitas, for instance, that these are just ideals. No lying, no stealing, no, the rest of it. And we can't, we can't expect to uphold those. And what, what I'm suggesting, having re-examined the precepts now that we are going to have Jukai, and it's an opportunity for me always to learn something more to examine something more deeply, it occurred to me that these are not ideals at all. That these are actions in our daily lives that we can do. <laughs> these are not un unattainable things. There is no precept that says, you shall never lie. There's no precept that says, you shall never steal, you shall never kill. Never. There's no never in precepts. And there is no always in the positive form of the precepts. Like, you shall always tell the truth. You shall always cultivate life. You shall always not take what's not given. So it's a mistake, it's sort of a cop-out to say, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can't do that, I can't never kill. But the precept doesn't say you should ne never kill. It just says, don't kill. <laughs> and you can, in this moment, not kill. It's not about never, it's, it's about now. It's about this moment. And that's how our lives are lived. It's, it's not about making these 
uh, broad brush strokes about, I will never do this. I will never lie. No, forget about that. I'm not going to lie right now. And that I can, I can manage. <laughs> I can manage that. So these precepts are about our everyday life, moment after moment after moment. So there are three, um, three pure precepts, which you will, which we will hear in the um, in the Jukai ceremony. Not to be bad, not to do unwholesome things, to do wholesome things, and to purify your mind. To get clear, to get clear as to who you really are and what this situation requires. You know, from the moment you got up this morning till right now, you have made countless decisions. Our, our life is full of decisions, one after another. Do I get out of bed today and <laughs> go to Oan? <laughs> you know, should, should I or shouldn't I? Even your decision today. You know, do I really want to try this? Or do I want to stay in bed and have fun with my sister and, you know, just to do what I do on Sunday mornings? Even though, like, what should I brush my teeth? What should I have for breakfast? I mean, even your choice about what you should have for breakfast is a moral choice. You may not realize it, but it's, it's, kind of, it's a sort of an agricultural act. By eating certain things, you are supporting certain industries, certain activities. And if you really examine that, you may come to a different decision. But so many of our decisions are just made on automatic pilot. But in Buddhist practice, we, we practice being mindful of the consequences of our actions, our decisions. And that goes all the way from whether you're going to get up at 7 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock to whether you're going to help someone die. From the whole spectrum of decisions. And so I invite you to ask yourself, on what basis do you make your decisions? How do you decide what to eat and what not to eat? What show on television to watch and what not to watch? What person to vote for and not to vote for? How many possessions do you have and how many you don't? Whether you use an electric car or, you know, a hybrid or a gas guzzler. You know, what, on what basis are you just kind of churning out decisions based on what everybody else is doing? Or do you have some kind of moral compass against which you measure your life? And this is what the precepts are about. They are asking us to 
get in touch with our fundamental goodness and live our lives out of that, out of that fundamental goodness in each situation that we encounter. And the interesting thing about the precepts is that they're absolutely essential, but they're also almost impossible to to use as rules. (laughs) So if you're in a very specific situation and you have to decide, should I lie or not? It gets very complicated. And the precept says, don't lie. But this is such a specific situation. How do I apply that very general rule? That's very difficult. Because every, I, I like to use the, the term exquisite specificity. <laughs> every situation is exquisitely specific. And it's so hard to apply a general rule to it. That's why we meditate. Because meditation helps us to see clearly. So we begin with the intention of being good. And our practice helps us to see clearly so that we know how to apply the precept. How to not lie. What what what, how, what does this situation really require of us? And it's that kind of clarity that we get when we, when we meditate. We, can, we, we, we sort of focus the camera so, the lens, so that it's, it's not so blurry uh, and, and get clear as to what it is, what's going on here, and how do I respond out of my, my fundamental goodness. What does my fundamental goodness require of me in this situation? <clears throat> Most generally, the function of the precepts, from my understanding, is that they help us They help us see our connectedness with all things. If you live by observing the precepts, you do not feel separate from anything. For example, if if you have that sense of interconnectedness with all things, experientially, not just intellectually. There's no reason to take anything that isn't given to you. Because what you're taking doesn't belong to anybody and belongs to everybody. So the whole idea of taking something is kind of taking from yourself if you're connected with everything. Who who are you taking from? 
what are you getting? You know, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't compute. So the precepts reconnect us with, fundamentally with people, but also with all beings and helps us understand that deep connectedness that we have. And the other thing that the precepts help us do is to reduce the influence of our ego, our self-centeredness. And if you observe the precepts, you're much less likely to go the route of I, me, mine. <laughs> you know, to see the world as revolving around you. Because the precepts, the precepts orient us to others, to serving others, to offering to others, to connecting with others. And so no separation, and which is pretty much the same thing, no self-centeredness, no giving the ego the, the dominance. So, you know, our practice, Buddhist practice, is an everyday practice. It's not some mystical thing. It's, Buddha said, I'm about one thing and one thing only, suffering and the liberation from suffering. And that is about our lives, everyday life, everyday practice. If this practice doesn't result in liberation, a liberated and fully realized human being, it's worthless. It's absolutely worthless. So there's another um, uh, example of <clears throat> this relevance of our practice to our everyday lives and all the decisions that we make constantly because our decisions are about actions and actions are about morality. That's what goodness has to do with. It's not, it's, it's how we behave in the world, how we connect with others. So <clears throat> uh, in one of his books, Alan Watts talks about um, visiting a Japanese temple and most apparently, um, George, you would know better than me, but um, I'm, I'm going to Japan in November, so I'll be have, have an opportunity to see these great temples. Uh, but they're really sprawling, um, sort of, uh, I don't know even what you would call them. They're, they're, they're almost like suburban developments. You know, They have all kinds of... Um, cottages and, and uh, cemeteries and so Alan Watts describes his walking through uh, a, a kind of compound uh, of temples and you, he r describes going up these amazingly beautiful and ancient steps, stone steps that he's walking up and then coming to this enormous um, pillared carved entranceway and then going into the temple and seeing all these golden Buddhas and all of this handwork 
uh, and marble floors and all kinds of very incredibly uh, or ornamental and, and, and hand-done uh, uh, features of the architecture. And then he moves through the temple, which is very elegant and royal, even though it has this sort of wabi-sabi quality to it, you know, the sort of rustic quality. And then he goes through the temple into the place where the monks live, uh, in these little cottages. And they're a little less um, royal and ornamented, uh, but much more sort of modest. And then there's a cemetery beyond that. And then there's a kind of a forest, forested area. And then he says, he keeps going, and it, it enters into a kind of um, open area and a kind of gravelly path. And he says, he looks down and he sees this wild parsley. And so from this highly um, ornamented and fancy and momentous experience of coming into this temple and then ending in this sort of pa little um, uh, country path with, with this wild parsley growing. And he says, you know, our path, our Buddhist path ends in the parsley. The path ends in the parsley. It ends in our ordinary life. Nothing special. And parsley is, you know, one of those herbs, just occurred to me, it's, you know, not an exotic herb. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of an ordinary, a bit healthy, <laughs> a little bitter, but, um, you know, healthy. And it's, it's, it's wild. It's just there naturally. Um, so you can imagine we're conducting Jukai today, and it's, it's ceremonial, um, but it ends in the parsley. It ends in the parsley. And our lives, our lives move back and forth, back and forth this way, from these auspicious and momentous moments which we all experience and then back into our ordinary life, <laughs> you know, where we're brushing our teeth and having our breakfast and then back and forth. The path, the path goes both ways, both ways. We can drink from the cup of our deep religious, spiritual history and tradition, which is what one of the things we're going to do today. We, um, we, we recited Kobanchino's, uh, Kobanchino Roshi's uh, instructions for meditation. He is our lineage holder. There are photographs of Koban and my guiding teacher on the altar. So this is kind of a momentous time where we're reconnecting with this amazing lineage. And then also, you know, we're just here in the woods <laughs> together, just kind of being spiritual friends. We're just, yeah, we're just sitting together and nothing special, 
we're just practicing being good, good people. That's it. So this is wonderful journey that we're on, and it's, it's, it's this. It's it's not that we're. It's not this. <laughs> you know, it's not like we're reaching for some kind of mystical star up there. It's it's this this back-and-forth journey as we come every week to sit on our cushions then go back home and do our things and go to work and and then come back and forth and back and forth. And we do this internally as well. So it's wonderful that we can all uh, participate in um, receiving precepts with George. And um, again, precepts are our interconnectedness and our non-separation. So as Buddha said to Ananda, when Ananda, his, one of his closest disciples, uh, said, Ananda said, you know, Buddha, I think I've discovered something that spiritual friendship is... Half of, half of the path, half of our path. Um, and Buddha said, no, Ananda, you're, you're wrong. Spiritual friendship is the whole of our path. It's the whole of it. We don't have a practice unless we have a Sangha, unless we have a Buddha, unless we have a Dharma. So, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, in the 21st century, the Buddha is the Sangha because we've lost this sense of connectedness. We're all like individual egos, you know, trying to, trying to accomplish, you know, our personal goals, the sort of celebrity culture that we live in. Um, so it's wonderful that we can all be together. Uh, Kalyanamita, spiritual friends. So, welcome everybody uh, to this auspicious and very ordinary day. <laughs> Thank you.